and welcome to the Climate Minute, your source for insight and perspective on global warming news. My name is Ted McIntyre. This show is for the week of September 5th, 2023, just after Labor Day. Turns out that in the atmosphere, the current global level of carbon dioxide pollution is 419.18 parts per million. It's 419. That's way, way above the 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that scientists tell us we need to be at. And furthermore, according to my deep investigations, there's only 2,310 days left until the year 2030, by which time we need to cut our carbon dioxide emissions in half. So there's a lot to do. Well, if you're a climate activist, you've probably heard of something called the Inflation Reduction Act. It is commonly called the biggest climate bill ever passed in the world, and probably some truth to that. It's perversely named the Inflation Reduction Act, I think for political reasons, to satisfy Senator Manchin from West Virginia, who uh, finally agreed to what amounts to a climate plan uh, to try and as we say, reduce our carbon dioxide pollution. The Inflation Reduction Act, again, you may know this, but provides a lot of money and a lot of incentive to build renewable energy projects. That is to say, solar panels, wind turbines, battery systems, all kinds of good stuff that um, we want as climate activists, right? The money's there now. And so the, the situation has changed dramatically from a few years ago. And looking forward to 2030, there's money around to build the renewable energy that we need. However, the presence of all that money raises other issues, other questions that come up. In particular, if you say, gee, I want to build my favorite wind turbine project, The reality is you have to go and get permission. You have to get what are called permits. You have to do, you have to apply to to the various states and municipalities that own the land you want to build your solar panel on, right? And and what happens is that oftentimes that is a place where new projects get bogged down. And in fact, that applies to both renewable energy project and fossil fuel projects, uh, like the much-hated uh, Mountain Valley Pipeline that Senator Manchin wants and the Willow Project up in Alaska, right? So there's there's permitting questions, as they are called, that relate to both fossil fuel and renewable energy systems. And these are all brought into high relief by the Inflation Reduction Act because in the Inflation Reduction Act, our favorite Senator Manchin wanted to essentially gut the environmental side of the permitting in order to, quote-unquote, speed things up, streamline the system, etc., etc. On the other hand, there's legitimate questions that environmental people, we want to build these solar panels, big farms, as quickly as we can. Everyone knows the urgency. And so there are two sides of this coin. One is that enviros want to correctly accelerate the construction of green energy projects and the bad guys in the fossil fuel industry want to just cut through everything and build their fossil fuel infrastructure with as little opposition as possible. So you end up with this huge question of how are these new projects to be permitted, to be built, to be you know accepted in the communities, right? And so there's lots and lots to talk about that. And so recently there's been a 
new report published uh, by an organization called the Climate and Community Project, which is entitled A Progressive Take on Permitting Reform, which, as I hope we can unpack with our guest, there's a lot hiding there. Uh, and there's a lot of really useful information. So let's get right to the uh, the person who actually knows what he's talking about. Uh, Dustin Mulvaney has joined us. He is a professor of environmental studies at San Jose State University. Dustin, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your interest in this topic of permitting reform. I think it's a really important one, and it's one that has been confounded by a lot of different topics that have been kind of bundled together in this quote-unquote permitting reform. And hopefully we can talk about what those various aspects are and, and happy to that's great. take that's, your so, first question whenever you're ready. I give my usual long-winded, my usual long-winded introduction, right, to uh, – did I get it right? What, tell me, what's the kind of state of play of – "Quote unquote permitting reform," and what does that even mean, right? What's the basis that people, if we want to think about how to move forward, what do we, what do people need to know about where we are today? Well, I, I think a few things have have happened here. So there are a couple of ways that the phrase permitting reform is being used. So some folks are just using it to call to describe anything that could cause a delay in a project. So if you're a renewable energy developer, for example, first of all, your state needs a law that says your utilities need to buy renewable energy because we're still at a spot where renewables do need some support, whether that's tax incentives or or whatnot. So first things first, if your electric utility doesn't have a high renewable portfolio standard, you're not going to see many renewables projects get built and things like that. But there are other things too. So like, let's say you want to build a wind farm. You need to have an agreement with a transmission line of some kind to connect to that. And that's one of what I think Lawrence Berkeley Labs and other um, independent researchers have found is a major hurdle, which is that utilities are pretty slow. And actually it's the, the, the transmission operators. These are more than just the utilities. These are people responsible for managing how electricity moves through kind of a regional grid. I think up here and, in Massachusetts, that would be the independent systems operator, ISO New England, which is a nemesis that has done lots of weird things lately. But yes, they have to be involved in all these decisions and they're a source of delay and problems of uh, getting stuff going, right? That's right. Yeah. And you may often hear like there are there are more renewables projects stuck in the queues, in what they call the interconnection queues, than we actually have of energy generation in the country right now. And that's partly because the, the, the process by which these power plants are applying and, and getting these agreements with the, the transmission operators is just overwhelmed. And they're overwhelmed with not just projects trying to get electricity to these utilities with renewable portfolio standards, but also the developers themselves actually have no insight into what's going on. They don't know how much it's going to cost to connect to the to the grid. So like if you're a wind, let's say you're a wind farm operator, you might put three projects into like the interconnection queue process, but only really plan to build one of them because that's might, might be what your finance are. But, but you don't know what the different costs of those different projects are until you actually get 
the transmission operator to study it. And just so, just to be clear, that we, we, there's a vocabulary word in there, the interconnection queue, right? Interconnection which is queues, yep. sort of rolled up into the whole question of permitting new new things, but really is this sort of separate issue that the utilities won't let you connect to their electricity, won't let you connect your wire to their wire, right? And so there's this whole deep issue of who gets to actually put electricity on the grid that is oftentimes stalls projects, right? And creates these things. Right. And and what the utilities need to do uh, just to give them, you know, they're not purposely doing this. They're, they have to actually look at things like how hot are the wires going to get? If I put a, like a, a certain kind of power plant in a certain area. So they have like all these other, they have like electrical issues. They have thermal issues that they actually do have to study when you plug these new, new projects in, but the, the system seems to be somewhat broken down all to say I listened to a podcast that was only about interconnection queues, had nothing to do with the Environment, National Environmental Policy Act, nothing to do with local zoning. The whole time, these two professionals kept calling it permitting reform. Really? We need permitting reform for interconnection queues. Now, those are private agreements between or private contracts between or agreements between individual parties. So in some ways, this, you know, as government has no role, government can, can do certain things to make you know, contracts happen faster or change the process by which um, contracts are, are handed out. But it's not environmental policy that we're talking about there. We're talking about private contracts between utilities. And that's partly why we wrote this report, because we heard people calling different things permitting reform. And permitting reform means so many different aspects. And what's happened politically is that this whole phrase permitting reform has been used in Congress to, to basically take away some of the protections we have under the National Environmental Policy Act, and they want to do more. They want to take take away more. Um, they want to gut more of our foundational environmental laws because that phrase permitting reform has somewhat been weaponized mm -hmm. by those who are actually having difficulty getting their permits, which I'll tell you, as someone who studied renewable energy siting for 15 years, it's not solar and wind developers who are having problems getting their environmental permits. Those are, you know, if you talk to communities, for example, in the American West, you, they, they describe that as basically a rubber stamp process mm -hmm. to go through and get your environmental permits. And that might be different geographically across the country, but pipeline developers, liquefied natural gas developers um, of for export terminals, they're the ones who are having a little more trouble. That Mountain Valley pipeline that you mentioned at the start there. They could not get their Clean Water Act permits legally. That's why it had to get added into that um, into that congressional bill is because they had no legal path to acquire their Clean Water Act permits. That's nothing I've ever seen happen with a solar or wind farm. And just to just to put a fine edge on it, right? That bill, which now this is a separate bill that passed in June of this year, 2023. But right. Senator Manchin was somehow able to, oh, it was the debt bill. It's to save us all from right, collapsing the debt, the debt ceiling bill. Right? They put in this thing where the, the Mountain Valley Pipeline would be given all of its quote-unquote permits by right. congressional fiat, and that just rolled over everything, and it was all done under this name of permitting reform and streamlining the system, right? And it's yep. an example of, as you say, the weaponization of this concept by the fossil fuel industry to, to just roll. And what? Okay, so that's happened just, before, by the way. That you know, the Trans Alaska Pipeline. You might remember that in the 1970s. That was similarly 
um, pushed really? through by Congress. Really? Because they couldn't get their 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 environmental permits. And in that case, that might have been a little more neat, but that was early in in NEPA's process. That was one of the early on ones. But anyhow. Tell me, tell me about, since you mentioned NEPA, tell me, NEPA is, again, the acronym is uh, the National Environmental Policy Act. It Correct. gets bandied around a lot as sort of the devil, right? But, you know, NEPA, mm. bad NEPA, right? What is it and what is it called to do? So the National Environmental Policy Act is essentially a reporting requirement and disclosure requirement that major environmental projects will be evaluated and their impacts will be described to the public and possibly mitigated. And then the public has a chance to opt to, to weigh in and say, you know, you got to mitigate that better. Or in, in some cases, they'll present different alternatives. So we have a case study in, in the report, for example, where, um, you know, the National Environmental Policy Act was being evaluated for a transmission project. And the project, one, one project went through uh, Native American reservation as well as a national forest. And then the other alternative was to route it along the highway transmission or transmission developer, even though the, the one along the highway was pre-approved through a separate process, which we'll talk about later, the planning process. Um, that was the agency preferred alternative. The agency said to the developer, this is the actually path we prefer you go because it'll along have much fewer impact go along the highway. Um, but the developer cried, it's too expensive. We can't. We got to go through the national forest. And then eventually they realized that they're not going to get the project built unless they actually go with the agency preferred alternative, which had actually been evaluated and vetted for 13 years at that point. Um, and then the thing got their permits pretty quickly. They dis disclosed what those impacts might be. A particular alternative was selected within that. That's pretty rare, actually, to see like an an agency alternative be different from a developer. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But that's a, that's a case where that process works. The NEPA and, process, and, and you end up with a the NEPA process works and, and shows that you you know sometimes you can look at environmental impacts ahead of time and present a couple different alternatives to get the same objective, which is moving mm -hmm. power from one place to another, and you end up with um, in some cases better results. Most projects, by the way, most renewable energy projects um, don't even require an environmental impact statement. Well, that's just so, going to so, ask. I mean, the, the NEPA, the NEPA, the yeah. Environmental Policy Act is the place where you, it for certain projects, you're going to explain more, but this is where the environmental impact statement, quote unquote, comes into play, right? This correct. Is the, yeah. So the bugaboo yeah. that everybody points at. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. So, so environmental review, when I say it's a reporting document and disclosure, there's a couple of different ways that that disclosure process works. If it's a project with, with big impacts, meaning it's a big infrastructure project, the big dig in Boston, I'm sure that required an environmental yeah, impact yeah, yeah. statement. It might be in the state level. I think state has a little more power in Massachusetts than most states. California is similar in New York. It's like their state agency has, a, has kind of an equivalent, but, um, so those projects, if they require an environmental impact statement, it's a little more of a thorough reporting. And that's when you have sometimes alternatives being discussed and vetted. And then they might have mitigations, meaning like if you're going to impact this particular landscape with this wind farm, you might need to do some conservation outside. Or you might need to do something like I've seen projects where there's sandhill cranes 
near a wind farm, they might have to employ a biologist mm-hmm. on time who's empowered to like say, you know, today's not a good day for the wind farm because <laughs> mm-hmm. the birds are, mm-hmm. are coming through. Mm-hmm. And that might just be a way, you know, the birds aren't there all the time. They're there just maybe when they're coming through for a short time. Migration kind of thing. Yeah. Parts of the country. So all to say that um, that environmental impact statement is, you know, the most onerous type of review under that, but it's very uncommon to actually require that level of review. So most projects um, that are looked at through the National Environmental Policy Act across the board, not just renewables, um, are environmental assessments, which is a less onerous, kind of more simple, just description of the project's impacts. And usually that's just they're done in nine months or so. Whereas the environmental impact statement could take two years, you know, you'll see reports where some have taken longer than that. But that's usually because like with a mine, for example, a mine, a miner might say, hey, you know, this is our proposal. They'll get their permission to start doing things and they'll change something. Say, oh, actually, we went over here. We're affecting different groundwater. We're, you know, we're going to pump more water might be something like that. We're going to dispose something different. And then they'll they'll change their plans kind of midstream, which it's not really the regulator's fault that the mine developer keeps kind of changing what they're they're proposing to do. I think mining, that's why we separated these different categories out. Like mining, I think, is different than renewable energy projects, which is different than transmission. And then we have a whole question of permitting around distributed energy, which has nothing to do with the environmental, national environmental but, policy. I, but I, I think that the gist of what your report is, so thank you very much for explaining the NEPA process, what that is. But I think that I think that you've been arguing that that is not the major those environmental impact statements and assessments are not the reason various projects are going slowly, right? So why are well I don't know how you want to divide it out. Why are renewable energy projects going slowly? Why are fossil fuel projects going slowly? Is there a distinction between those two circumstances? Well I think that um there have been instances where the National Environmental Policy Act has been used um, through litigation or just through having difficulties obtaining their permits for fossil fuel projects. So I think that that the fossil fuel industries have had a more difficult time getting, quote unquote, National Environmental Policy Act permits through that. I don't think that that's the case with renewable energy developers. Um, there are often other things going on. I mean, even just during the last couple of years, we've seen supply chain causes, uh, challenges for uh, solar developers for a whole bunch of different reasons, whether it's a bottleneck or we've had restrictions on importing solar panels from certain parts of China because of issue with forced labor. So that caused projects to be delayed. Um, But yet we end up on this in this position where kind of the climate movement has been um they I think they find that argument compelling we we all experience red tape and bureaucracy mm-hmm. in our lives mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. we don't want to stand in line at the post office or you know we or DMV so so I think we have a inheritedly uh, inherited kind of a negative view of of environmental laws to to some extent here and um you know what are the major driver things that are slowing down transmission build out for example well electric utilities compete with each other right so like right. why would electric utilities i'm sorry the um yeah electric utilities but also the transmission uh yeah. operators that would be well here in massachusetts is all deregulated right those are all separate private entities well, let, right. let me just let, i mentioned it before but i just wanted to put in for the people in massachusetts to think about that there is a 
is an ongoing project called Vineyard Wind, which will install 62 mm -hmm. wind turbines off Martha's Vineyard. But at the same time, there are two bigger projects that were slated for the off the North Shore of Boston, I think. I'm not exactly yep. sure where. But, but the companies that proposed it and, and signed a contract to build those wind farms, those new wind farms, with the advent of COVID and Mr. Putin's war in Ukraine and whatnot, all of a sudden they got cold feet. It was going to be too expensive. They reneged on their contract. So now the whole thing is potentially delayed another couple of years, even here in Massachusetts. That has nothing, zero to do with any kind of environmental or environmental. That's purely the kind of, um, shall you say, red tape kind of delays that slow things down, right? Yeah. But that all gets that rolled into permitting and aren't the environmentalists bad. Yeah, and I think there's another piece going on there too, right? You're uh, on the on the Atlantic side. You get a lot of these, like they call them astroturf groups that might be funded by like fossil fuel industries, or often you hear like the Koch brothers are funding these little organizations that set up anti-wind stuff, and then they write op-eds. And I think what's going on here a little bit is that the people who are reading these op-eds, they're reading the op-eds that are the anti-wind, and they're killing the whales and all these things. And then they're seeing the projects not get built. And they're putting these two things together. They're saying, oh, look at all this grassroots resistance to wind farms. They must be they must be playing some role in slowing down these wind farms. And that's pretty compelling to people mm -hmm. to say, like, mm -hmm. we need permit. And then they end up saying we need permitting yeah, reform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do they actually mean by that? And it means a couple of, of different. I mean, the the case is a really perfect one because I think that the offshore wind in, in, on the Atlantic side is often held up as a example of why things are too slow. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is moving too slow with leasing out these areas. Um, they they actually needed a whole new statutory authority to do that stuff because they had um, permission to do certain things with oil and gas on the ocean seabed floor, some kind of mining and some sand mining and things like that but they'd never had um a way to do this for for offshore wind so that took a little bit of time but i don't think that even that you know ramping up their own agency capacity getting the laws in place to give them the authority to do lease out land out there mm -hmm. i don't think that that has slowed down those wind farms it's the other things that are going on here and i think that your case that you mentioned with the the supply chain challenge and them and them reneging because they they basically, so it's pretty easy to get, they're called power purchase agreements. Right. So like when an electric utility, when a, a developer wants to sell to an electric utility, they get a power purchase agreement. And those power purchase agreements are how the electric utilities document and keep track of whether they're meeting the renewable portfolio standard or whether they're on pace to do it. Um, and so the utilities are, even though like that offshore wind project, you know, they're they didn't meet their power purchase agreement, so they ripped it up, and now they're, I guess, renegotiating, or maybe yeah. it will get rebid or something like that. Um, you know, those are those power purchase agreements again are they're private contracts between you know individual entities, and that has nothing to do with environmental review, and it really doesn't have anything to do with the grassroots resistance that's putting all these this misinformation out there about whales and wind turbines right. and things like that. That might affect the public sentiment more broadly but i don't think they're affecting these particular projects and what and we end up in this position then where they say well we, we need to weaken the environmental laws because those weird little grassroots groups might sue us right. and they might right. stop our projects eventually therefore we need to but we haven't really seen 
I mean, there, there hasn't been a wind farm that's been stopped by litigation. So, the, so well, I mean, I guess now it's faded so far into not, the- not need, I'm sorry. Let me clarify. Not National Environmental Policy Act litigation. Yeah. Okay. I don't think yeah, there's been yeah, a case yeah, yeah, where yeah. that, that Wind, has happened. The Cape Wind project that was great in the early 2000s finally failed for financial reasons. Not. Uh, uh, I guess it just. And, and there might be issues with with where the transmission lines come onto the coast, like substations, and, and but that probably substations are not. You never have to write an environmental impact statement for a substation. Those are like very very light reviews usually, um, and they're usually substations that already exist that they're they're trying to connect to also as part of that so all to say that zoning issues are you know that's a slightly separate issue like those grassroots groups could affect zoning right they could go right. and say like your general plan shouldn't have no substations here or your general plan should have no you know solar or wind in western massachusetts if you're looking at the state level right so those groups could do that but that's not environmental that's not the national environmental policy act that's a separate and again what you're pointing to is all these these different kinds of shall we say, uh, um, sand in the gears of moving forward have nothing to do with the target the uh, of, I think, the fossil fuel industries to reform the the NEPA rule to make it easier right. to build the pipelines. And th- there's, there's, I mean, on the one hand, so for just to, for the listener, on the one hand, we've got fossil fuel industries that want to gut the NEPA rule so they can put in more pipelines faster, right? Which is a mm-hmm. bad thing. On the flip side is there are environmental advocates who want to build renewable energy projects faster, right? And somehow there's so mm-hmm. there's this funny overlap of permitting reform, you know, let's accelerate things. I guess mm-hmm. I mean and there's a huge amount of stuff there. But I, I mean one quite one question I have for you is if you put all this aside and say what what could we do? What are the recommendations in your report for what are the positive things that we could do in order to accelerate the green stuff and get that going? Because I think that's what people, I think a lot of people want to hear about. It's like, what's the, you know, what can we do to make this stuff go faster nationwide? And I know yeah. you've got great, I mean, t- tell me, what, what are the so things? Much, there's people, so many things. There's so, so many, many things. things. Yeah, yeah. You put a whole... <laughs> A whole buffet of things in there, but I'll just hit hit on a few of them. One of them, I think, is kind of lay off the National Environmental Policy Act first and foremost. I think that that is the 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 law that is. You know, just look look every every day we're seeing not every day. Very often we're seeing successes from environmental groups stopping federal oil and gas leases. Um, pipelines are being stopped in some places because of that, and this is because we have a strong environmental set of laws that protect our drinking water and our air quality and things like that. In fact, you might argue that we need to strengthen it in a couple of ways. One of them, we need to strengthen it um, for more planning. So like having kind of landscape level planning, thinking 10, 20 years out about where things will be, that's going to mediate a lot of those local conflicts that might occur down the road, I think that that's that's another. I mean, that's a fascinating point. Look, can I, just so yeah. I want to hear more about it. You, but I think what you're saying is that the federal government level, I think you have an example in the report. The federal government level should be proactively looking at where across the whole country you could put uh, solar farms and wind turbines and get that process underway now, 
so that there are these yep. these sites are sort of pre-approved, and you can you can say, oh yeah, we already know that there's no uh, endangered species, there's no sacred artifacts, there's nothing. You know, you can you can do it there, right? And and that would That's be. Right. That would be a proactive thing that we could be doing now at a nation, national level of planning and, as you said, looking ahead a few decades as to what we want to be doing and get that underway. And, now, and actually, right? that 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 concept we we that concept we can layer down a couple of ways. One, so there are these what they call pro. So we talk about environmental impact statements in the National Environmental Policy Act. There's something called a programmatic environmental impact statement. Um, the federal government has initiated a few of these. One of them is called the Western Solar Plan, where they identified areas across the American West where they could um, more rapidly site solar. That means if you site within one of those zones, even though there's some impacts still that was part of the process, um, they're approved with an EA, Environmental Assessment. Simple document. They don't have to go through an environmental impact statement. Um, but counties can do that as well and states. So the state, California, another case study we have in there is the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan, which is basically the Western solar plan for California. But in that process, they they also protected land as so well. So the state as, of California took action, right, to yeah. to survey this stuff. Okay. Yeah. And, and that has been in place for 10 years, no litigation. I think we had six, we had about 16 gigawatts going yesterday or uh, of solar power utility scale and then throw in another 12 or 13 of rooftop solar we got a lot here in california so so we don't see that that's partly why i think you know my take on it is a little different than people across the country because you know, we're building stuff here in california we're building really big stuff and we're building stuff and some of these renewables are not in great spots some of them like we're building mm -hmm. projects that are in high conflict with desert tortoise and things like that so that's why i kind of see the environmental review process as being needed to be strengthened more for that and at that landscape level so the other so california i mentioned is another programmatic environmental impact statement they passed that by the way when they they first passed the renewable portfolio standard because someone was smart enough to say like oh we're going to require the utilities to buy all this electricity it's going to cause a big issue in the desert everybody's <laughs> going to go out there and start building everything somebody so, said there's, so there's two that. shoes in this box right <laughs> you gotta you know. go and then to go down one more level so the county i'm up, we're currently on the technical advisory group for um uh the lithium valley um what's it it's what's it called it's lithium valley technical advisory group equity sorry lithium valley equity technical advisory group and what we're doing is we're working alongside an environmental justice group um on imperial counties plans to develop um lithium from their geothermal resources this is the, the idea is that Place. This is in the Salton Sea. Yeah, okay. Lithium Valley is now being kind of recast and rebranded as uh, as Lithium Valley, and they currently have a programmatic environmental impact statement and their general plan, which is the, the, basically the county's planning process of like where they're going to put roads and infrastructure in the future and things like that. So that's another example. Like they're thinking out into the future, they're thinking about where things are going to go, and they're really trying to front load what are the community concerns mm -hmm. like where can we make sure that we you know minimize ecological impact how do we make sure that environmental justice communities don't have a bunch of like idling trucks sitting outside of right, right. a lithium plant to take away the car the the, the materials to wherever they're going to be made into batteries uh, or where the battery plants are going to go if they're going to be right in around there right, right. so those are just a, so a couple different levels like planning those programmatic environmental impact statements i think are really key 
to um, minimizing conflict, um, but also the gen- you're getting into that general plan process um, will help kind of figure out sort where things are going to go, kind of get out in front of the zoning issues that, that might come up as to well. Me, th- so- that, that probably means, just think about it, it's like what you're saying is there's county, state level work that can be done. There's work at the federal level. Would that not right. imply that there has to be more the federal government needs to invest in in people and more resources to do all that work because it probably is not that manpower, person power to do it now, right? That that that's right. So in the case of the the Salton Sea case, the Lithium Valley case, um, they actually could put a tax on lithium that's going to support community. I don't want to call them community benefits. Community communities getting getting more out of. That basically that that those funds get recirculated back into the community to get mm-hmm. the community more things that they need, more parks, more uh, public infrastructures, and, and things like that. And I think that's part of you know one of the messages here too is that you know one of the challenges I think we're seeing with transmission build out is there's a lot of rent seeking behavior going on with the electric utilities, meaning that they're trying to do the most profitable things, not always the best things. And sometimes, so with transmission lines, um, you know, they are able to mark up the cost of building transmission lines and sell that and basically pad that back into what they call the rate base, basically what the rate payers who pay electricity bills are paying for. And, um, you know, if a, if these utilities were publicly owned, maybe there's more opportunity to influence the direction of where these projects go. Because I think, you know, depending on where these transmission lines go, we could ha- end up with a situation where, you know, you get more cumulative impacts from, from transmission projects. Because now suddenly there's all these new wind and solar areas open for uh, development. I think the Green Link transmission line that's being built in Nevada right now is a perfect example. It's not one of the main lines people have been talking about that's necessary to like to move power across the country and you and NV Energy, which is owned by mm-hmm. um, Berkshire Hathaway. You know they're gonna they're gonna make a lot of money off that project as well as some of their subsidiaries are gonna you know tag into that as well. So the so public ownership of the transmission line or the you know, renewables you, themselves, I think, could open up some. You're singing, you're well. singing a song that I often hum to myself. It's like, why Uh-oh. are we still stuck with with privately owned utilities here in Massachusetts? They're all corporations that are trying to make money, right? And what I mean, there's pol- there's politics involved, right? But I mean, mm. what would the image be like if the whole country had? What amounts to me, I think you guys referred to it, the Tennessee Valley Authority. And for people who don't haven't didn't remember that from the third grade history book, right? That was when the federal government electrified most of the country and they just did it with federal dollars. I mean, yeah. why couldn't we just build all this stuff, you know, renewable wind turbines and solar panels with federal dollars and the heck with this uh, for profit motive? Is that plausible? Yeah, I mean, think about what you could do in one trench along a highway. You could drop uh, high-speed internet. You could drop power lines. You can build a whole bunch of public infrastructure in the same trench, <laughs> right? And, mm-hmm. and instead, we have all these. We have publicly you know, some things public, some things private, and we end up with, um, you know, the system we, we we see out there today. So I think, you know, kind of goes with the planning. 
a little bit because I feel like, you know, a, a publicly owned utility would kind of mesh more with the, the planning. I mean, in some ways it's worse out here in California and, and in utilities that are fully deregulated because not only you have private transmission developers and private uh, renewables and, and fossil fuel developers and, and everybody's just competing for the, the best spot. And it's not, it doesn't have kind of that upper, that high level view of like, what is the optimal system? that we should be building here because we're just letting market forces dictate where things go. And then it ends up with, you know, especially when the system's very opaque and people are lacking information, we, we end up with, we're going to end up with a, a, a system that is less than ideal because, because of the, the profit motive to, to build the most profitable things, not things that benefit the rate. Well, it's, it's, somebody said the planning will be done in the back room, right? Well, the planning will be done by the person who makes the most money, and you're never going to know what it was. And the, yeah. I mean, I think that and we don't have to worry about money in politics or anything like that. <laughs> no, no, that, that never happens. I mean, I think what you're touching on is the need for proactive thought about all this stuff at the national level that goes well beyond just accepting someone else's idea and passing judgment on whether or not this power line is is appropriate. I mean, it's like there's all kinds of stuff that needs to be done, as I say, proactively in order to allow more rapid installation of the kinds of technologies we want to see. Yeah. It's funny. I, you know, we, we, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's fascinating. I hadn't, I've often thought of, you know, why don't we put high-speed rail down the middle of I-95 from Boston to uh, to Washington? But it's just another thing. You could put all kinds of internet in there, right? You could route internet across the country, give it, give that to everybody. There's other stuff that can go in there that's on yeah. federally owned land if if just the federal government would take that action, right? Or, or um, you know, states often have the rights of way. That's one of the reasons that people like those there, states already have the right of way often along the side of a highway like because mm -hmm. the Department of Transportation already owns it. So there's actually there's a bill in the California legislature right now to incentivize more transmission along highways. There's actually federal money from the Depart Department of Energy for in the loan guarantee program for transmission lines along uh, highway corridors as well, especially if you could bury them. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, if you yeah. bury them, you get a, a lot more benefit out of that. And it's expensive, but. You know, so are, so is everything else. So is <laughs> so climate change. Else. So so are wildfires. So are all these other things. So, the, so there there are so many interesting. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about how you could plan better for distributed energy, um, in, in, energy resources, and why that would be useful. And just to make sure everyone understands, so distributed energy means your producing energy locally for use locally and it can get more and more sophisticated where you're in a your own little closed grid uh, but long and short of it is you can make if you're on the island of Martha's Vineyard you know generating your own energy locally is a good thing so tell yeah. me you, you guys thought about that what, what are the advantages and the reasons you'd want to think about distributed energy well I think we in in the California of experience, we have learned that having more distributed energy in our urban areas means that we need less power in and around our, our urban areas, which is which is good during certain times. Um, it has also led to the avoidance of a lot of transmission build out, really? um, meaning that because we have so much local local distributed, 
solar, we haven't had to build out as much transmission. There have been cases many, many times. In fact, often the, the during this the utilities planning process, which is called the integrated resource planning, um, you know, often they'll propose, this is what our plan is. We're going to build this transmission and this and this. And then um, in these cases where we're thinking about what are the uh, incentives for distributed energy, they'll often show that, hey, if we, if we invest this much money in distributed energy, we can actually avoid those transmission investments because now that power is being lo- locally generated. So avoided and, and it transmission. Just, I mean, it just mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as an example of this, like, Everyone's heard of Diablo Canyon, big nuclear power plant out somewhere yeah. out where. So, I mean, by the impl- having that centralized energy production means you need transmission lines to carry the power everywhere else. Whereas the distributed right. energy production means you're you're producing on a rooftop in in Los Angeles and you use it right there. You don't need the transmission line anymore, right? Yeah, that's you. It, that's a complicated question, but yes, that in general, yes, there's substation issues. There's, you know, you might have to, right. you might still need to have that much power be able to be moved to a certain area, but you won't be using it that much. Right. Um, so, so yes, I think that the basic idea is you, you can avoid more energy infrastructure if you have more distributed resources. California also is somewhat unique. Sorry, I know that. Most of your listeners are not here, but um, because we get a a lot of our power from really far away. And we also have these things called power safety shutoffs because our transmission lines are uh, we're not very well maintained by some of our electric utilities and have caused some catastrophic wildfires. So now we Mm -hmm. end end up with these, you know, we actually just had our first one a little north of us of I think since in about two years because we've had pretty good rain last year or so. Um, but power safety, they basically shut the power off, even in areas where it's not windy, because somewhere along the transmission system, it's windy. So there are grid resiliency benefits also to having more distributed energy. I just had a student finish a master's thesis looking at microgrid deployments in California. You can deploy them in environmental justice communities that often have um, in, have higher levels of outages just because they're part in a part of the grid system that isn't as well maintained there. Um, and you can also think about grid resilience from how ha- you have these key emergency infrastructures, mm-hmm. earthquakes, what, whatever. It's funny you mentioned that because I mean, here in Massachusetts, we are increasingly dependent on faraway power because we keep claiming we're going to use the hydro Quebec power, which comes several hundred miles to mm-hmm. us uh, uh, across power lines that may or may not ever get built, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a very uh, interesting, but it, I guess it highlights this question of local gen- distributed generation locally versus remote generation, and what are the what are the equities or the the trade offs there? Because as, as you say, yeah. there's a lot going on. It's not it's not easy, but I mean it's a it's a way to view the problem. And just to go to go back to kind of think about it in terms of permitting reform. Mm-hmm. So distributed energy resources do not require environmental impact statements. They do not require environmental assessments. They're usually um, fall in California or federal um, as categorical exclusions or categorical exemptions if they even rise to the level of any level of environmental review, which is not rooftop on a house. We're talking like a parking lot. It might be in a supermarket or something like that. Um, usually categorical exemption means they basically get their permits with, within months once they just show what they're, they're planning to do there. But 
there are other kinds of permits. And here's where the actual the language is actual permits. Like you need an electrical permit. You need a fire safety permit. You need all these permits at the local level um, to have someone come inspect your roof. Right. So there's a whole bunch of things that are also permits. They have nothing to do with Environmental Policy Act. They are, you know, there's a little bit of an interconnection queue issue also, like with rooftop solar wanting to connect to the utility. So there's there's that as well. Um, so we think about like how do we speed up or what's slowing down uh, renewables uh, in addition distributed renewables. You know, we're really talking about overburdened, you know, local you know, fire safety mm, officials, mm-hmm, electrical mm-hmm. inspectors, like they, they just don't grow on trees. Like you have to actually have a your city pay for these employees to do this. And they have to have enough uh, bandwidth to be able to do all the inspections they need. Do you need your utility also to do that? Sometimes those are understaffed, like to get a PG&E inspection. Well, it, it comes back actually, to... I ca- we capped our, our natural gas pipeline to our house. It took th- four months just to have the the reviewer just... Really, you know, sign off on on the, the document for something they do every day. Um, so you know, electric u- utilities, uh, gas utilities, sometimes they're the ones that are slowing things down as well. So we could do we can use a lot of quote unquote permitting reform at the local level to make distributed energy a little easier to build. Fast. So I got one more question. I we, we I don't want to. Hold- <laughs> You're very kind to be with us this long. I have one more question that's close to my heart. It's the question of. Um, and it, I think this is more close to to the kinds of environmental um, protections we you'd like to think about. But the idea that we need lithium for our electric vehicles, so that every F Ford F one fifty gets a whole bunch of lithium to drive around their big truck, right? We, we're talking about mining lithium, which it turns out, for better or worse, is incredibly destructive. But that's a whole issue by itself. But I, I mean, from a from the question of who gets to literally, I think the, it goes to stake a claim, right? Yeah. And and people, the way the law stands now is you can just go into the middle of the desert and put your hand up in the air and say, "I own this. I'm gonna I'm gonna find all the uh, the minerals in here I like, and no one can stop you." Right? It's, tell me that story and what people should be thinking about. Yeah, so um, you know, this is this would probably kind of fall under the mining permitting reform or critical metals and minerals mining uh, re- permitting reform question. Right. And going back to that point, we said you know it's sometimes hard to um, for even a mine developer to know what they're they're going to build when they're in in the process of building it. Um, you know, the the metals question I think is really interesting for a couple of reasons. One is sometimes we have substitutes that emerge. So we might say we're going to need all this lithium in the future, um, but then sodium batteries show up or, or something else that gives us uh, an out, so to speak, with that, with the demand for that particular metal. In the Western United States, most of uh, mining is happening on, actually, I shouldn't say most mining. It, mining is happening on a combination of public and private lands. And the, the, the mining that activities that happen on public lands, which are very extensive in the American West, uh, happen under what's called the General Mining Law of of 1872. 1872. 1872. The punchline here is you can't build a modern economy on an 1872 lawn, line, uh, law. Yeah. <laughs> you can't build a modern 
decarbonized economy on an 1872 law. There's no environmental protections in there. Um, the other thing about the American West, of course, with the history of colonialism is that most Native American reservations and communities are out in the American West. And the number of, I think it's something like, um, I actually have the number right in front of me somewhere. Let me see if I could pull it up right here. The amount of, oh, I don't have it in front of me. Um, some some very large portion of of mining activities in the American West occur within a certain distance of Native American communities, yeah, 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 meaning, yeah. you know, it's critically important. You know, federal um, review of cultural resource issues has been really poor for Native Americans. If you ask Native American groups about, you know, how they feel about the federal process for citing a mine, getting their con- their their uh, input, they would basically say it's 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 broken. Um, so that's why we use the word consent. We we think it's really important for Native Americans to have to, to have consent with the development of these extractive industries on on public lands. I just want to before we get too far away. I mean, the 1872 law has minimal requirements for anything, right? Basically, it is a claim that you you send a letter and say you own. Isn't isn't is, is that not how it goes? So, for example, the the lithium mine in I think it's called Thacker Pass is basically claimed uh and they get it for zero dollars the, the the company that wants it gets that right to use the hard mineral in the federal land for zero dollars based on this 1872 law right yeah the ro- the royalties are are not very strong I just had a, a master student finish her thesis on on uh, Thacker pass um did amazing uh, interviews with with the community up there and you know that's an interesting one because it's held up as uh by some people as being a, a great example because there was a community benefits agreement with the tribe there. But as my, my student found that, um, you know, there's other tribes that also made claim on that, that particular piece of land for its cultural significance and they didn't get any of that. And so you could see there, this is causing some level of, of conflict even within and across Native American tribes as well and that that's kind of we've seen that before we've seen that you know even on like the north slope of alaska where the tribes weren't completely in agreement with what the future of the resource development should be they have different interests with their own communities as well and and they're not you know they're very heterogeneous too within the community so there's lots of diverse perspectives in there that that goes back to a sort of a, a recommendation you made have made in the report is that counterintuitively the best way to move projects forward is to begin to talk to the communities as early as possible. And you just mentioned indigenous communities, but I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, there's communities here in Massachusetts, I mean, everywhere. You want to begin that conversation as early as possible. And that sh- literally short circuits the uh, uh, the litigation, if any's coming, because people get to know what's and get a get to speak about it, right? Isn't that fair? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a phrase and I got a figure out what the exact wording is that the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management has been using when I'm listening to their offshore um, planning process. And it's something like, go slow to build fast. And the idea is like, well, let's think about these things. You know, climate change is coming at us fast, but we have all these other issues as well. And we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to, you know, 
reproduce the inequalities we see. You know, we can say, oh, we're going to save climate change with this hydrogen. And then suddenly, like, we're poisoning a community that lives near an oil refinery because they're still running and making the hydrogen there. Um, so we want to be, you know, thoughtful. Um, and, and that's when, you know, the more voices, that's part of the reason is you get more voices in early on and you learn more. The, the agencies learn more. The developers learn more. Um, predictability for both the developer and the environmental groups is important. Right. And I think we, we've created a permitting reform conversation where we're just trying to give everything to the developers and say, we're trying to make it easy for you. We're just going to rip up the environmental laws. Nice and That's predictable for you. Yeah. And um, instead, what we really want to do is make the environmental laws predictable. And we want to make for, for everybody. Right. So that so we we know what what we have protected as you know people who want to save parts of this planet and developers know where uh, where has been vetted and is can thoughtfully and responsibly build renewable energy. It's it's when you speak about the including communities early seems like it would slow things down. It keeps bringing to my mind, it shows my age, but John Wooden was the coach of the UCLA basketball team back in the 60s. And his phrase was, you know, be quick, but don't hurry, right? So you want to move, but you don't want to rush the process. You want to include people. And that's a, uh, uh, I think, is a way to think about how to include communities uh, uh, in this discussion about siting. Well, just well, to, to, to bring it full circle... You know, I've had a couple of conversations, luckily, with Bill Walton. <laughs> and as you know, he's on a lot of these rooftop solar commercials as a big advocate for rooftop solar out there. Ex-Boston so Celtic. I guess, I guess those, those two know each other or knew each other. <laughs> well, Dustin, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. This is a fascinating topic. There's, we've probably touched maybe 10% of the of the thoughtful research you've got in this. In this. I would highly recommend... Uh, people pull it down. There's a fact sheet to get you started. There's a uh, the report's very readable. Um, oh, in 30 seconds, I, again, I hate to hold you, keep, keep you. How do you want people to use this? You want them to throw it at their congressman well, to get their attention, or, or <laughs> what's well, I, the idea? I think, I, I, I'm hoping. You know, we're we're all concerned about fossil fuel pollution and, and climate change. And I'm hoping that this just improves the dialogue because I've seen a lot of thoughtful people who are interested in environmental justice, environmental climate justice, environmental um, impacts. And, and, you know, they, I think they've wrongly accused, they, they've kind of fallen for the, the, the bait a little bit here and they're wrongly accusing the Environmental Policy Act of, of slowing things down when I hope we can be more careful in our conversations about what's actually slowing things down and then figure out, you know, learn from, you know, everybody that is, do, is doing this kind of work, um, how to do things faster and more responsibly. Super. Well, we'll put it down there. I, uh, I will put up the links to the report and various other stuff we've mentioned in the in the blog at the MCAN site, that's massclimateaction.net slash uh, blog and podcast. You have to kind of stretch around, but the links will be in there. Uh, and of course, you can get this show on all the major distribution. You get it on Google, you can get it on Apple, you can get it no longer on Stitcher, but hopefully you found another place to listen. Uh, we're on Spotify, we're on all the places. Uh, please listen and tell your friends to listen to the show. Um, 
We want to thank our good friend D.R. Tucker for his continuing research support. Uh, and we want to close where we always close by saying that we have to think about building consciously building our future along the lines of what Dustin's talked about here. Consciously think about how we're going to build out a renewable energy future. Uh, and there you go. So, Dustin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's been really fascinating. I love chatting with you. So, anytime. Take care. Great, great. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Very cool. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.